So, take it away, Joe. By Joe, you mean me? Yeah. Okay, not Joe Dante. No. People of Earth, attention. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. The first satellite creature to impregnate man with its chromosomes. We can now proceed with the next part of our plan. I am not mad. No, no. Join your hosts, Keith and Christian, on a journey to discover lost treasures of cinema. Now, strap in and get ready to schlock and roll. Space, monsters, science. Since time immemorial, the planet Mars has fascinated us. Now, four brave astronauts will set foot on its surface. Journey with them to discover its mysteries. Journey with them to danger. Journey with them to a film that has the temerity to start a half hour into its runtime. Journey to the Angry Red Planet. Angry indeed. Yeah, so here we are. We're going to attempt to do a second episode here on the movie Angry Red Planet. I'm Christian. I'm Keith. Let's not just attempt it. Let's succeed. Okay. that's For one thing in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this was your pick. And uh, it really does seem like a Keith Cunningham type of movie. I remember it being less boring than it was on the second viewing. It was painful. I actually fell asleep the first time. And then I was like, I'm good. I'll just do some research and read about the ending. And then I'm like... No, I better watch it, and it doesn't doesn't help that second viewing. No, it's it's very it's it uh, it it goes well. Angry Red Planet came out in uh, what 1959, a perilous journey of four astronauts who embark on a mission to Mars, only to face a series of enigmatic phenomena and dangerous encounters on the planet. Only a few of the crew members survive the journey and make it back to Earth safely. The event of the mission are the, then revealed through a series of flashbacks detailing challenges and dangers the crew faced on the Red Planet. Yeah, you gotta love a movie that's, you know, all flashback. Yeah, it's, uh, that's I think what lost me to begin with was the flashbacks and it was hard to keep a, to keep track of what was going on at what times. It just, it, like, I think you nailed it in the intro when you said that it, it, a movie that doesn't the, the, start for the first half hour. First hour, it just, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. It's, Mission Control is talking about, yeah, the rocket's out of control. And what they amazed me, and... what amazed me is there was no setup. They went right to those army guys to come up with a plan and the scientists to come up with a plan to get them to Mars. And it was just like, they, they wasted no time. And I was like, here yeah, we go. Yeah, but then once they're in the flashback, they wasted all the time. They wasted they all the time. Um, they're like, okay, we're we're going to land and we're going to stand around and discuss the fact that we landed. And, hey, uh, we're going to introduce some mild uh, flirtation between these two characters, but... They don't have any chemistry, but it's the fifties, so that doesn't matter. That this was a very cringy movie in that respect. There was a lot of gender politics in here that I, I realize are a product of the time, but boy, were they cringy. Yeah, Ter- um, terribly written characters, terrible dialogue. I mean, it was good dialogue in the fact that it fit our criteria, but it I was- um. 
How about how about uh, Jacobs, or as I should call him, like Chief Warrant Officer Cletus, the the guy who's in charge. No, the oh the, oh right right, the uh, yeah the guy who's in love the, with his gun, the comic relief guy. <laughs> the, we'll we'll come back to that guy. He was. Um, let's go right to our first guest. Actually, it's our only guest, so I I don't want to keep you in suspense, but we place to call him we got a good friend of ours to come in and talk a little bit about this movie joe dante he was totally the real joe dante yeah he was actually totally nice about coming in and talking about the movie with us and you know what can i say hi welcome to trailers from hell i'm joe dante this is ib melchior week we are running three trailers by the redoubtable writer producer director the first of which is the angry red planet coincidentally ib's first picture it was released in 1960 by AIP and prominently featured in the pages of famous monsters of Filmland. For centuries we have wondered. Sharing with Ub Iwerks an unusual two-letter first name, Danish Ib Melchior began his career as a stage manager and live television director. Went on to become a playwright, author, screenwriter, and director. In 1959 he made a deal with exhibitor and would-be producer Sid Pink to write and direct for Scale his first movie, Invasion of Mars, which emerged in 1960 as The Angry Red Planet. Made in 10 days for just $200,000, this was a rather odd account, told mainly in flashback of an ill-fated flight to Mars which kills off three of the astronauts on board. As presented in heavily touted Cinemagic, the first new look since the invention of the camera, it says, some ads even called it oddly a strange new process, the puppet-like creatures here are seen in a kind of acid-etched, solarized cartoon vision, shot in black and white and tinted red. The actors in these Mars sequences wear exaggerated silent film makeup, the better to blend into the visuals. It doesn't really work, but it's distinctive, and considering the limited budget, imaginative. The rationale is that this is the distorted memory of the astronaut who came home. Comic artist Norman Maurer, son-in-law of Stooge Mo Howard, was behind Cinemagic, which he developed as Artiscope, a process for printing 3D comics. It doesn't hurt that the great Stanley Cortez is behind the camera, adding some stark lighting to the pretty cheap spaceship set. But the big appeal here was the monsters. The Bat-Rat Spider got the most attention in Famous Monsters, but on screen it's actually kind of ungainly and it looks like it doesn't have any weight. Nonetheless, the picture is kind of imaginative, and Ib went on to work on several more science fiction pictures, including Reptilicus, Time Travelers, and Planet of the Vampires. You will see the wonders of this strange and terrifying world when you see the angry red planet. Did you have a uh, rat bat? Oh, I have an infestation of those. Hi. In my bathroom Dante, right now, it's pretty bad. Just baby ones? Well, yeah, they lay like a thousand babies at a time. That's, I mean, you got to use fire. That's what we oh. learned from this movie. Wasn't his gun an ice gun? Yeah, it was some kind of like ice gun. It just like froze, did it freeze them? Yeah. It, I yeah. don't know, it was very kind of not explained. That's. A, I mean, that there was, was a, a lot of over-explaining of nothing. Yes, that was a good clip to pick because it, segues into two different things that I wanted to talk about. And that clip comes well, from a site we'll probably reference a lot, and that's Trailers from Hell, which is actually Joe Dante's site, and they show trailers and talk about movies very similar to what we're looking at tonight. Okay, so um, as you heard, uh, probably in a more technical way than I can explain, Cinemagic, which was touted as this big new revolutionary thing that went nowhere, was a low-crossed process of mixing live action and cartoon drawings designed to fit with low-budget sets and props. 
To do this, they solarize the black and white film negatives. Solarization makes part of the negative appear positive. They then color tinted the film red, for Red Planet. It winds up making it uh, kind of hard to see. Every it's everything's blown out. It's a, it's basically inverted. Yeah, I did like the integration of the drawings. Because they were they were very stylized. I do. I did like a, the. I did like the way they did that. I, that really wasn't a complaint for me. Yeah, I liked I those drawings, and I think it was a cool way. Like if you were to do that now, it would be considered edgy and cool and avant garde. But back then, it was just desperation. Yeah. It'd be an yeah, artistic I, choice I think, now. Yeah, I think I think you could get away with it now, and people would be like. Hey, that's a throwback. I like that. Yeah. Definitely. And but by, and, I had no idea that Mo Howard's son invented the process. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> that's a crazy fun fact. Do you remember what solarization is from college? Did you take photography? I said we never covered solarization. Oh, did it you? was all digital by then. Oh, wow. Okay. So solarization is basically like just kind of letting, I don't have a technical definition. Um, I suppose I could insert one here, but from my memory, it's basically like a letting, exposing your paper or your film to light very briefly, causing a little bit of a light leak. And it kind of creates that, um, it kind of creates that, that bloom almost well it's yeah it's a bloom and it's kind of like inverted but it's um i've never done it in color i've only done it in black and white and i've only really ever been able to do it successfully once it was i think by pure luck but every time i've ever tried to do it again it never worked for me so it's just like the right amount of exposure to light causes that effect well i think as you see in the film it's very hit and miss it's... yeah there's no guaranteed way to get it because it's almost a, has a pulsing quality to it. Did, did you notice that the copy that we watched had had like a various hues of orange in the uh-huh in it and then they watched the ones on YouTube and there was blue in it? Yeah. I wondered what that I'm was. I'm wondering about. if that was maybe somebody's attempt to remaster or just go to straight black and white. Yeah, it could be. It would it would be oh, it was it, it, yeah. Joe, call us up and explain it. Yeah, we need we need the four one one on that one. But uh, Ib Melkor, this yeah. is an interesting guy, and I think he'll come up a lot as, in further episodes because his career very much overlaps with this genre of uh, B films. And Shot the, the film it was nine days and two hundred thousand dollars. Guy must be a madman. Uh he was. He was born in 1917 and lived all the way up to 2015. Wow. He was a novelist, short fiction writer, film producer, director, and screenwriter. He was uh, the director on a film called The Time Travelers, as well as writing it. He wrote Reptilicus, Journey to the Seventh Planet, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Uh, Which we have to language- watch. Yes. The English language script for Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires, which I do insist is actually a really good movie. Uh, His 1965 short story, The Racer, was adapted as the 1975 film Death Race 2000. Ooh, uh, Roger Corman. 
Yeah. He was the uncredited source of the idea for Lost in Space. Huh. Which he came up with in an outline in 1960 called Space Family Robinson. And he actually uh, finally got some proceeds from it when they made the uh, the film that had Gary Oldman. Oh, yeah. Okay. But huh. um, perhaps more interesting than any of his film uh, achievements were was his life during World War II. He served as a member of the U.S. Army's Counterintelligence Corps, participating in the liberation of Flossenburg concentration camp, the recovery of stolen gold and art at Merker's Kaiselbach Cavern, and the capture of the insurgent werewolf unit for which he earned a bronze star. In 1965, as a direct decorated war hero, he was named a Knight Commander of the Militant Order of St. Bridget of Sweden. Huh. That's a, quite a life. Yeah. I don't think I really looked that deep into it. He's uh, he's an interesting guy. and He has, definitely has an interesting career. Mm-hmm. And an awesome name. Ib, yeah. Both names, really. Ib Milklar. Yeah. If anyone was going to get into the, the business of making, like, B science fiction movies... Right there. Yeah, I gotta get Ib. Call Ib. Call Ib in. Um, not too many notable stars in this movie. The the like the dim witted guy who was there for a laugh, Sam. Uh I read that he was played by Jack Crucian. He had a long career with over two one of those character actors at over two hundred titles. Uh he was in the Adventures of Superman, Dragnet, The Apartment, and uh for our fellow millennials he played Papuli in the Particularly sad episode of Full House, where Papuli died. Was that Uncle Jesse's his grandfather? Un- great uncle. Oh. Yeah, I think it was his uncle. I could be wrong. But, yeah, I remember seeing that and I was like, oh, Papuli. Um, it's so weird that I remembered that just I, now. Oh, I know. As soon as you said, like, Papuli and he died, and it was like, there was an episode where his... So and so die. He was in two episodes. He was in earlier in the show, and then he came back to die. Came back to die. That could be a film on its own. So, um, I don't have it. Oh, I never played the trailer. Well, I think we did the. They kind of yeah. covered it within like the trailers yeah. from hell. So, um, where do you want to move to next? Mars. Actually, I wanted to discuss um, the art. We sort of discussed the art stylings for the the drawings, but how about creature design? The rat, bat, crab thingamajigger. Yeah, I liked I liked the creatures. Yeah, for sure. Even 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 like the the less well defined ones, like the tentacle plant monster and the the sea-based amoeba. Yeah, right. It was very creative in that regard. You don't see that's a lot of sci-fi. That's what this realm had going for it. And that's the thing. It's like the dialogue was bad, but it had... No, again, I think I said the dialogue wasn't bad. It was very typical sci-fi of its time. Or not even of its time, but even now. It, like, it just kind of... 
I mean, this is pre-Star Trek. So it had that same kind of like quasi-techno jargon that really means nothing, but it sounds scientific. And there was a lot of that. Oh, no, this is 100% scientifically accurate. Oh, okay. I'd like to see the, the papers on that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll write some of them. Okay. Uh, but I, I think that, honestly, what made up for the, the corny dialogue, we'll say, is all the special effects. Yeah. Even though they were clearly done on a budget, they were clearly done with love. Right. And at least some attempt at creativity, working within the bounds of what they had today. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the story, on the other hand, <laughs> that could have used well, some work. They go out of the ship, they go into the ship. They go out of the ship, <laughs> they go into the ship. <laughs> and there's a lot of flirting. Yes. Um, bad, bad flirting. <laughs> it's and, like if I try to flirt. So there's there's four characters. Do you, do you remember the, the name of the four characters? I have them written down. Colonel Tom O'Bannon, Dr. Iris Ryan, Chief Warrant Officer Jacobs, and Professor Gettle. The most beatnik crew member of all of them. <laughs> so yeah, they, he was stoned the whole time. They go on a mission, basically they go on a mission to Mars, and only two come back. Um, the, uh, the doctor, and, no, the, um, yeah, the doctor, Iris, and the skis ball. What was his name? Colonel Tom O'Bannon. Of course it is. It's a perfect name. And the guy is like straight out of Brooklyn, just like street rat. And he is flirting hard right he, out of the gate. He gates. seems like, uh, have you seen Futurama? Yeah, bits and pieces. Zap Brannigan. Okay. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. And I guess let's let's bring up our first clip because you got to get right into it. Now, I'm going to play two parts of the same clip. I'm not going to listen to the whole thing. But pay a particular attention to the order. Makes Broadway look like a dark alley. When we get back, Irish... How about exploring that dark alley? Together. You, Colonel, sir. May have a date. Ooh! So that was the first clip. Okay. I love the dramatic music sting there. Right, right. The end. Colonel Tom O'Bannon finds the most erotic part of a woman to be the dumper. All right, I'll lead into this one. This, this happens later. I feel like he's the sort of person who refers to himself in the third person. I would think so, but only to himself in the mirror. The first scientist I've ever known with a lovely, long red hair. And you're the first pilot I've ever gone to Mars with. And wow. My name is Iris. Not Irish. I never know if you're calling me by name or nationality. When I call you by name, you'll know it. Colonel Tom O'Bannon's women don't need names. So my whole thing with this is basically that it's just so... First of all, she just seems really taken with him. She's like, okay, I'm into this stud, yeah. and of course I'll go on a date with you. And 
doesn't even care that this he's this respected her, right. weighty scientist astronaut is going to fall for this complete meathead. And I was like, I remember typing in my notes, wow, that happened fast. <laughs> yeah. That was in the first like 10 minutes of the movie. And when they were wasted all that time. Right. Yeah. And he keeps calling her Irish instead of Iris. And, and I wonder if maybe the actor just kept forgetting. That I could see that. But they use it as a device for him, his chauvinism. But he... But she's p- totally fine in taking Colonel with him. Colonel Tom O'Bannon doesn't know the meaning of the word chauvinism. <laughs> no, really. Explain it to me. I don't know it. The... Um, so my, I think my point was that she, it's just like she was totally into him at the beginning and then later she's like wait a minute what's this Irish crap and he's like my name is not Irish it's Iris and it's like now you correct him I don't know that was just like at this point in time is she even sure anymore they really portrayed portrayed her character terribly like yeah. I almost wonder if this was um like there's a certain level of, like in the fifties, there was a certain way that women were looked and treated, that don't line up to our values today, but what? what, what? But <laughs> I feel like they've made this even worse. I can't imagine that any anyone back then was as dumb as this woman was portrayed to be. Oh God, no! no. She was just terrible, and. And I'm not saying like her, the actress, her, the character even. It's more like the writing. Because clearly not um, uh, somebody who has maybe spent a lot of time around like assertive women. Yeah, right, exactly. Somebody who feels like this is what a woman is behaves like and that's why I don't like them. Or at least this is what the audience wants to see a woman be. And... I mean, we might as well get them out of the way at first. There's so many examples of this. Mostly it's the writing because they just don't give her very good lines. And they just make her sound t- like just unintelligent. Well, in fairness, none of the people sound that great. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I shouldn't attack her specifically. But here's here's one of the great lines these guys gave her. Where are you going, Irish? Stick close to me. Oh, Tom, really? I know you think I acted like an hysterical female back in the ship, but I assure you I'm perfectly capable of taking care of myself. I won't get out of your sight. Have it your way, Irish. And then she immediately walks into danger. And he has to come save her. That is almost line for line a scene from Prometheus. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Um... Not quite, but it's like the the scientists just acting really reckless and stupid. Like, oh, this is strange alien thing. I'm just gonna put my face right up against it. It's it, maybe because the scientists don't know any better, and it's the soldier who protects them. Here's I here's... will say this for her though. When they get back to Earth, and he has that green goop arm. That's encasing his uh, starts on his arm and is starting to encase his body. She is the one who saves his ass. Yeah, because she yeah because she is a smart scientist. So 
that is good role reversal and turning of the tables, as it were. But here's got. I mean, I got a couple more examples of just this terrible dialogue, and then I'll. You okay, I'll, Irish. And then we'll give her a chance to redeem herself, or the writers can anyway. Hmm. I'm actually looking forward to start to work. No, I can't say that I recommend spacesuits for beautiful young dolls. What happened to all your lovely curves? Now, Sandy, Here's Cletus here. Some of the creations I've seen in New York store windows didn't look too much better. So, we, I should have put together a, a... With the little hair, hair flip. Thing. Right. I should have put together a list of all of Jacob's, or whatever his name is. I should have put together a clip of all his best lines, because he had some of the dumbest things to say throughout like this whole movie. Like, weirdest out of, like, out of nowhere. I'll see if I can find another clip. I'm sure I can, but it's it's too bad. So, Iris does have a chance to redeem herself. Basically, later, they, when they come back, she's she's relatively okay, and Tom O'Bannon... Um, like you were saying has a green goop all over his arm that's kind of taking over his body and she comes up with the scientific formula to uh colonel tom o'bannon's such a player he's had goop coming out of every orifice (laughs) i'll fight him That's the sound of science being done. Ooh, some haunting theremin music. Electricity. We have already talked about Dr. Ryan. But any kind of electric shock strong enough to kill the amoeba will also kill Tom. I know. Then how? We've been attacking the alien amoeba as if it were a disease, but it isn't. It's an animal. An animal with instincts. And most important of all, a will to act. It only makes it harder to destroy. And gives it a vulnerability we also have. That of making a wrong choice. Look. We had two identical tissue cultures there, both infested with our own microscopic amoeba and placed very close to each other. One we left alone. The other we subjected to light periodic electric shocks. Before long, all the amoeba on the irritated culture had made their choice. They moved to the nearby undisturbed culture. Then that is what we have to do. Sciencey, sciencey, science, science, science. She saves the day. By, by electrocuting him. Exactly. And just this thing just somehow falls off his arm. It's it's I mean it's it's a brilliant story. It's okay. Colonel Tom O'Bannon has discovered he likes that. How so, so uh <laughs> how did this end up for our heroes? Um they were in love because they had such good chemistry and she saved him with chemistry, sort of. Well, well, I was referring to uh, the warning given to Earth creatures oh. on Mars. Ah, I see. okay. So it w- turns out this was all just uh, retaliation. For what they deemed an invasion of their planet. And, w- and a warning was sent 
via recording. It's amazing that the Martians have reel-to-reel. That's right. Tom, Iris, They're so advanced. I have something I want you to hear. You were right. The whole speech was on the recorder, the last tape. I think you should listen to it. Sounds important. Judge for yourself. Professor Weiner. Men of Earth, we of the planet Mars give you this warning. Listen carefully and remember, we have known your planet Earth since the first creature crawled out of the primeval slime of your seas to become man. For millennia, we have followed your progress. <laughs> For centuries, we have watched you, listened to your radio signals, and learned your speech and your culture. And now, you have invaded our home. Technological adults, but spiritual and emotional infants. We kept you here, deciding your fate. Had the lower forms of life of our planet destroyed you, we would not have interfered. So, yeah, basically they're um, slapped on the wrist for invading their planet. And and they're told, uh, you come back. That's it. It was, uh, it, they were quaking in their boots, I'm sure. They were probably on a mission immediately the following year. It, yeah. Uh, well, this was um, similar to, an- that the message there was similar to another movie that came out before. A little film from 1951 called The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, sure. Except we saw the creature. Yeah. I mean, we saw the robot. Yeah. The, the, except theirs was more positive. It was more of an invitation. This was straight up a threat. Yeah. Don't come back or else. That was just a taste of what we're capable of. We like, got okay. we got rats. We got bats. We got spiders. We I mean, mashed them together. I don't know why they'd want to go back, but... I feel like you got to call that guy's bluff. I mean, Colonel Tom O'Bannon doesn't look danger in the face and blink. Colonel Tom O'Bannon. Tom O'Bannon. So what did you think of the movie overall? Like I said, I had remembered it better, at least more eventful. Um... I liked the creatures. Yeah, the art was great. I would love to see stills of those. Maybe yeah, even like the, the unprocessed actual, the illustrations and. Mm-hmm. I wonder if any of the, uh, probably none of the actual, puppetry has survived. No, I would assume not. Or maybe I don't know. You never know. Did you find any um, reviews? I did not. That's probably a hard one. I probably one. should have looked for No, that's them. probably a hard one. Um, I overall, I mean, other than the the first time I thought saw it, I was like, I absolutely hate this movie. I don't know why we're watching this. It's so boring. And then the second time I watched it, I saw the charm in it. And I mean, not even charm, just like charm for its time. And it's still, it's a cheesy movie. It's, but it's like, it really sets the stage for a lot of things to come in terms of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think it lends itself credit for that, or should be given credit for that. But it was god awful boring in some parts. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> best movie ever. Really? You give it the best movie ever, huh? What we really want to know is what you think. And if you want to watch this movie too, it's available on Prime or was it Pluto? No, Roku TV. But We're you, so organized. But you got to watch it with commercials. 
All right. Yeah, I think those might be more interesting than the movie itself sometimes. I can see that. You've been listening to the Schlock and Roll Podcast, part of the Comic Book Noise Network.